So I humbly suggest that at a multi-campus and video venue church, it is very difficult to be united in the spirit the way Paul suggests in Ephesians 5. I would say we have to conclude that multi-campus, video venue, maybe even multi-service churches undermines the real presence we ought to have with each other in the presence of Christ. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Pastor Theologian Show. Today we're featuring two short presentations from CPT fellows given at our CPT Theology Conference from October 2019. Uh, The fellows that we'll be presenting on this episode are Matt O'Reilly and Chris Bruno, and we're going to start with Matt's presentation entitled, Every Sermon Should Answer Why. My name is Matt O'Reilly. I am a pastor at Hope Hole United Methodist Church, which is just just outside uh, Montgomery, Alabama. So it's state capital. We're on the edge of the politics in uh, an almost rural environment. Uh, been there just over a year, and uh, it's a joy. It's been a really good pastoral fit, and uh, grateful for that. The title of this, I think, is in the program. It's called Every Sermon Should Answer Why. And if you know TED Talks, then page 12, I'm told. If you know TED Talks, then you'll perhaps catch what we're alluding to there. If you don't, it'll be clearer in a little bit. All of us will know that the digital revolution has presented preachers with a specific set of questions and challenges to overcome. Technology impacts the way we communicate and the way our congregants receive communication, sermons not least. How do we cultivate focus, one of the questions goes, in a world of shrinking attention spans? How do we carve out a hearing when our congregants are bombarded with unlimited voices on every side, every moment of every day? We are sometimes told that sermons are outdated, Irrelevant in a digital world, we should be having conversations instead of speeches. In light of that, how do we inspire digital natives to engage ancient texts written in dead languages half a world away thousands of years ago? A variety of gimmicks have been tried. Perhaps if I preach from an iPad, I'll look relevant. Movie clips. Surely, if I can illustrate my homiletic points with Hollywood movie clips, I will be in touch with digital natives. After all, that's how people communicate these days with screens. Trouble is, none of the gimmicks have proven definitively effective for strengthening preaching ministry in a digital age. How do we do it? How do we engage in this digital world? I'm convinced that the challenges also present opportunities. Yes, there are more voices than ever vying for the attention of the people who sit in our pews, and ours is one voice among many. But with the multiplication of voices has also come the multiplication of triviality. So much of what is communicated in these new digital forms is petty, insignificant, frivolous, a throwaway. 
That creates an opportunity because it moves people to seek that which is substantive, to sort through the trivial and seek that which is robust. And we have that which is most substantive, namely the gospel, the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Nothing is more robust, more compelling, more beautiful. And our work is to communicate that altogether good news in a way that slices through the unending stream of frivolity in which we are all immersed. How do we do it? My suggestion is this. Every sermon should answer why. In 2009, Simon Sinek gave what has become one of the most popular TED Talks to date. It was called How Great Leaders Inspire Action. It's become one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time with, I think, over 46 million views now. The secret to its success, however, came not with the title, but with a catchphrase that Sinek articulated a few minutes into the talk. He said, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. He developed the concept in detail in his book, Start With Why. Perhaps you've had a chance to take a look at that. Here's briefly what he means. Sinek says that most organizations focus on what they do and how they do it. Computer companies focus on the machines they build, build, processor speed, storage space, screen resolution. Car companies focus on comfort, leather seats, dual zone air conditioner, all the bells and whistles, horsepower. They tell us what they are selling and how it will make our lives better. And sometimes we purchase what they're selling because after all, we need to get around or we need a computer to do our job, but we're not necessarily inspired by their products. Sinek recognizes in contrast that a few organizations start with why. Not with what they do, not with how they do it, but why they do it. He often uses Apple to illustrate. Think about the way Apple advertises its products. You rarely hear about processor speed. You rarely hear about storage space. They don't give you lists of specifications. Instead, they offer a vision of what it means to be human. Pushing boundaries, challenging the status quo, doing things differently, standing out from the crowd. And people buy their products not only because they are great products, but because they believe in the vision of human life that Apple offers them about the kind of person they will be if they use these products. They are inspired. People don't buy what you do, Sinek tells us. They buy why you do it. Now, the church is not a company. Preachers are not in sales. The gospel is not a product. But I wonder if we can learn something from Sinek's exhortation, start with why. Because after all, we do aim to inspire, we aim to influence, we aim to transform people's lives, we aim to change the world. And to do that, we must engage people in compelling ways. And one of the chief arenas for that engagement is the sermon. So what if every sermon answered why? Here's what I mean. Sinek says that why is a belief or perhaps a vision a vision of human life and what it can be. It's the good life, a life well-led, a life that matters. It's not the vocation of the preacher to offer 
Is it not the vocation of a preacher to offer a vision of human life that flourishes because it is life lived in Christ? Doesn't the gospel offer forgiveness and freedom, but also flourishing? Did not our Lord come to give not only life, but life in abundance? And shouldn't our preaching consistently, week in and week out, paint a compelling portrait of that rich abundance? Let me be clear. I'm not proposing any form of a health and wealth gospel. I'm not intending to water anything down. I don't want to paint a picture of, uh, of a rosy, always easy life in Christ. Instead, I want to offer a robust picture of life that is completely satisfied in Christ regardless of one's circumstances. Whether we have little or much, whether we are ill or, or, or well, whether we are sorrowful or joyful. We flourish when we are in Christ. That's our why. Our preaching ought to offer that vision, not occasionally, but consistently. Now, if the digital age has taught us anything, the form of our communicating impacts the content of our communication. The way we preach, our syntax, our structures, our outlines, bears on the material that we preach. Again, I want to be clear. Like many of you, I'm deeply committed to expositional preaching. I want the shape of the text to determine the shape of my sermons. I want the point of the text to be the point of my sermon. My question is this, can I articulate that point, the point of the text, in a way that cuts through the multitude of triviality that pervades our digital age? My weekly attempt to do that comes in what I call the bottom line term I borrowed from a colleague. The bottom line is a short, hopefully memorable, often provocative sentence crafted in a way that combines explanation and application of the text and extends a vision of robust human life in Christ. The bottom line is not just a big idea, if you're familiar with some of the standard preaching texts out there. It's a step beyond that. A big idea is an abstraction, a principle that spans generations The bottom line is concrete. It aims to challenge the hearer in their context, to consider their experience and the possibility of transformation in the light of the gospel. It focuses on action. A bottom line requires wordsmithing. It will rarely be more than 10 words. It should always avoid cliche. It ought never be trivial. It should be rhythmic, but it will almost never rhyme. It should be substantive, and it should be crafted in a way that lodges itself in the memory. To that end, it will often be marked by alliteration, the repetition of a key word. Even more, a good bottom line will often employ one of several memorable syntactical structures. Contrast, for example, not this, but that, or instrumentality. If this, then that. Perhaps an illustration or two will help. I'm preaching through the book of James just now, and yesterday I preached on James 3.13 through 4.10. That passage contrasts Wisdom from above with wisdom from below. True wisdom with false wisdom. And in stunning fashion, James goes after, almost mercilessly, those whose covetous desires to accumulate more stuff leads them away from true wisdom and to earthly, even, he says, devilish wisdom, which, of course, is no wisdom at all. What's the bottom line in that text? from James for us, simply this. 
The good life isn't more stuff, it's more wisdom. There's a vision of human life there that's free from materialism and wise in the pursuit, single-minded pursuit, of Jesus Christ. Consider also Ezekiel 36, where the people of God are chastised for profaning God's holy name with their bad behavior. The problem is that their hearts are stony and hard, so God declares his resolve to give new hearts, to give his own spirit, to enable them to obey his commands and keep his statutes. Why? The prophet explains it in chapter 36, verse 23. The nations will know that I am the Lord when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. The nations will know that God is God when God's people embody his holy character. What's the bottom line? God's reputation is our responsibility. Five words, a bit of alliteration, the heart of the text, and infinite applicability for a vision of human life and all the possibilities that come with life in the Spirit. So if the Word of God is a means of grace, able to redeem and sanctify those who bear the image of God, then we must do everything in our power to communicate it clearly and robustly. In this age in which we live, an age marked by the buzz of abundant trifle, provides a setting in which people will long, will hunger, will thirst for substance and inspiration. So let us articulate the gospel and exposit the scriptures in just such a way, to the glory of the triune God, the good of his people, for the life of the world. Let's have every sermon answer why. Let's get on to our second presentation for today's episode from Chris Bruno, entitled, Are We Present in the Church? Well, these uh, presentations will have different flavors, certainly for all of us. My name is Chris Bruno. I currently serve as the uh, Associate Dean and uh, Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minnesota. And uh, I'm a member of Bethlehem Baptist Church. I previously was a pastor in the 50th state of Hawaii, and I'm fresh off a plane from there. I still do ministry back there. So that's my excuse if I say anything dumb or incoherent. Uh, I slept on a plane last night. But uh, this is the Luddite presentation. So I have paper notes, but I am using my smartphone to time myself. Seems that every few months, a minor dust-up about some new application of technology in the church blows into the Twitter world or whatever technology we use nowadays. Again, I don't know. <laughs> uh, which then results in renewed debates about the benefits and dangers of technology in the church. These debates, uh, especially when they're taking place online, can often be more polarizing than they are helpful, with many quickly retreating into their corners of the technophiles and, well, the Luddites. And perhaps part of the problem is that these debates are taking place online. Nevertheless, at the outset, I, I need to express my appreciation and uh, my gratitude for the many ways that technology benefits us. Everything from microphones to emails to smartphones used rightly, podcasts, Kindle books, on and on we could go, benefit Christ Church in many different ways. But my time is short, and my argument is pretty simple. 
When we gather as the church, Christ is truly with us. Therefore, pastors ought to be truly with their people, and the church ought to be with each other. To the extent that technology enables this, we should use it wholeheartedly. To the degree that it prevents it, we should avoid it. So I want to quickly ask two questions as we make this argument. How is Christ present with us, and how ought we to be present with each other? Now, before I ask those questions, let me quickly define what I mean by presence. We don't have time to go into the weeds in this setting. Uh, Catherine Pickstock uh, engages with Derrida and others and argues that the good is a more appropriate category than absence versus presence, and that's fine. I agree to an extent. So, I, But I just want to temper that by saying uh, the good and presence, when rightly understood, are synonyms. To cut to the chase, true presence is true communion, which requires locality in every sense, body, mind, and spirit. So the good in this case, I would say, is our embodied presence with each other. So then quickly, how is Christ present with us? Well, during his uh, earthly ministry, the real presence of Christ, quote unquote, was not in dispute, right? He was there. Consequently, there's, there was this real connection between the words of the Lord and the presence of the Lord Jesus. Now, in the, the millennia since his ascension, Christ has remained present with his church, has he not? In the Great Commission, he famously promises, Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So how then is Christ present with us? First of all, Christ is present with us through his Spirit, John 14, 16. I will, uh, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So we can set aside debate here. I think most uh, the clearest connection here is the outpouring of the Spirit. So Christ's ongoing presence in the church is not merely a metaphorical or symbolic presence. Insofar as the Holy Spirit is truly with his people, Christ is truly with us. Second, uh, while the Spirit is with uh, or excuse me, while Christ is with us through his spirit, his presence is uniquely focused on the church gathered. Again, a very familiar text from the Gospel of Matthew where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Regardless of how we parse out the details, there's no doubt that the presence of his people through his spirit is uniquely linked to the gathering of the corporate body. There's more we might say about this when it comes to preaching, and we'll, we will in a moment. And then finally, Christ is present with us at the table. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. So participation in Christ, regardless of your particular view on the Lord's table, I think we have to be wary of the danger of teaching the real absence of Christ at the table, right? Christ is with his church. He's with us at the table uh, and we can talk later about what that exactly looks like. So Christ is present with us in real ways, but his presence is particularly tied to our presence with each other. His presence in the church, in the word, and at the table presupposes our presence with each other. So how ought we be, how ought we be present with each other? We can ask the same question. We can look at the same categories. 
We are present with each other through the Spirit. There's a very real sense in which all Christians are united in spirit, right? Ephesians 4.4, there's one body, one spirit. So we're united to each other, but union is different than presence. So in spite of some modern cliches, I'd say there's no such thing as being truly present in spirit for not present in body. Being filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 results in speaking, singing to one another. That's difficult to do if we're not with each other. Again, our presence with each other in the Spirit is found uniquely in the gathering of God's people, right? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul assumes that the Corinthian church will come together The assumption is that they'll be physically present together as brothers and sisters. So we're uniquely present with each other in the church. We're uniquely present with each other as the word is preached and read. So we, we can and should read the word when scattered. But there's a particular value to coming together around the preaching and teaching of the word. 2 John 12. The elder writes, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Though he was willing to use paper and ink, the technologies of the day, John sees a higher value to gathering together in person wherever possible. Might this not be connected to the embodied presence of the preacher as he proclaims the word of God. So we might even say the preaching of the word, in a sense, represents the presence of the risen Christ among his people. And it's significant that this representation comes through a person, an embodied person who is present with the people. So, We ought to be present with each other in spirit, uh, gathered together, hearing the word, and then finally at the table. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we truly participate with Christ, but we also truly participate or commune with one another. Participation or communion or fellowship with one another requires that we be together. Paul's critique of the Corinthian church was that they were present with each other, but not participating with each other around the table. So in verse 20, Paul rebukes the church for not coming together around the table. He's asking, how can the church be united, but not unite around the table? Now, unity around the table demands more than our bodily presence, but we certainly cannot say it demands less than that. I don't see how the opposite scenario is any improvement. That's to say we cannot meaningfully participate in the table with each other if we are not truly present with each other. Simply in the same room at the same time. So I say all of this as a member of a multi-campus video venue church. My, my 
uh, elders and pastors know that I'm saying this. Uh, <laughs> so I humbly suggest that at a multi-campus and video venue church, it is very difficult to be united in the spirit the way Paul suggests in Ephesians 5, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's very difficult to be together as a church when you're spread across multiple campuses. And just to get myself in hotter water, even when you're spread across multiple services, perhaps. Are we present together at the table for spread around a city, a region, even the country? Sadly, I'd say we are not. So then, in this very brief argument, I would say we have to conclude that multi-campus, video venue, and maybe even multi-service churches, can come at me later, undermines the real presence we ought to have with each other in the presence of Christ. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider uh, liking or sharing the episode online or leaving a review on iTunes. That all goes a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. If you want to learn more about the Center for Pastor Theologians, you can find us online at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Today's episode was edited by Trenton Jones. Our music was written and composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.